they can actually report online and they can report online without any further action being taken, okay. which means you can also tick a box saying if we find out that this offender has been offending against other people, can we come to you and talk to you about it in the future? Fantastic initiative. Mm. Fantastic. So then you don't have that comeback because I know personally if someone who sexually assaulted me in high school was going for a position of power in politics, if I didn't report in in high school and I found out that they were going into some sort of position where they had influence over other people, Mm. I would definitely consider reporting it. Now, that online platform doesn't make me crazy because they go, well, 20 years ago I did report it. Mm. I'm not crazy. I've just decided that that person shouldn't be allowed to go into a position of power Mm. when they're morally and sexually corrupt. Welcome to the Medusa's Mic podcast, where we come together to stop sexual violence. My name is Lucretia Rackfield, and I'm so very honoured to have your company today. Medusa was a victim survivor of sexual assault who was blamed, punished, and had her voice taken away. Too many people can still relate to her story, and we want to change that. It's time for Medusa to take back the mic. In this podcast, we'll share the personal stories of victim survivors, hear from experts in sexual violence prevention and response, and talk to the quiet leaders who are creating real change. Sometimes the content may be confronting, and I urge you to seek support when you need it. But overall, I hope each episode helps you to feel more informed and empowered to take action to stop sexual violence in your community. Today's episode is part two of my conversation with Erin Cash. Erin does a lot of amazing work in high schools and has some great advice in this episode, particularly for teenage girls around the issue of sexual assault. What I'd be interested to know is when these young girls are coming to you at the end of your sessions in high schools that you're doing around personal protection and they're telling you these stories, what is the advice you're giving them about these teenage uh, boys that are long-term family friends who are coercing them and sexually assaulting them? First thing I'll say to them is they're way smarter than I was because what I considered to be a normal Friday night, now they understand is an infringement on their personal safety and their human rights. So Mm. they're way smarter than I am. They're a generation that's going to, like you said, unpick at the conditioning that we keep perpetuating. Mm. So they're so smart. So I keep saying, them, you're so smart. This isn't a reflection on you. But then I say, you're your own personal protection expert. So I give them their different options. They can actually report online and they can report online without any further action being taken, which means you can also tick a box saying if we find out that this offender has been offending against other people, can we come to you and talk to you about it in the future? So you can tick that box. This is on the Queensland Police website? Queensland Police online website, and I think Mm -hmm. they were mirroring, I think, the Victorian Police now offhand. Um, Great. Fantastic initiative. Mm. fantastic so then you don't have that comeback because I know personally if someone who sexually assaulted me in high school was going for a position of power in politics 
if I didn't report in in high school and I found out that they were going into some sort of position where they had influence over other people, mm. I would definitely consider reporting it. Now, that online platform doesn't make me crazy because they go, well, 20 years ago I did report it. Mm. I'm not crazy. I've just decided that that person shouldn't be allowed to go into a position of power mm. when they're morally and sexually corrupt. Mm. You know? And so you feel, they, as an adult, you feel far more empowered to speak up and take action than you exactly. did as a teenage girl. As a 16-year-old mm. girl, I was a slut who deserved everything I got. Mm. Now, That's how you felt about yourself. Oh, just absolutely, absolutely. So, Lou, what was the really good question you asked and I did what I always do and I go on it. <laughs> I was just wanting to know for those girls who come to you, what are the top things that you advise them to do in those situations? So one, tell them they're smarter than me. Two, tell them what their reporting options are. Mm -hmm. Three, reiterate like I do in all of my self-defence and personal protection sessions. You are your own personal protection expert. You get to decide. Mm. You get to decide. That is our fundamental right. No rewards, no punishment. You get to decide. Mm. And we can't have our foot in one bucket and foot out of the bucket saying mm. someone else make the decision for me. That's that's not what personal sovereignty is or personal expertise is. You get to decide and you get to decide what's good for you. And then I get them to write it all down if that's going to be therapeutic for them. Mm. And if they don't. And, Lou, that's why the sexual assault guide that you said to me, this has to be beneficial. Mm. That was a step up on my consciousness on things that I could present to them to say this is something else mm. for you mm. to consider too. Like that was a breakthrough moment mm. for me in my teaching to give them that alternative. Mm. But always I go, I know for a fact if I had reported as a teenager, I would probably be heavily medicated and not very well now if I had reported. You feel, like you, you feel like you would have been laughed out of the police station back then? Oh, I know sure. things have changed now, but, well, sure. not, not always. Not only laughed out of the police station, but I certainly probably never would have gotten to the police. Yeah. And I would have suffered heavy ramifications mm. in my friend's circle. My confidence, I mean, I was already teetering. What teenager isn't grappling with self-confidence issues? And, and I think that's the thing that does come up for me a lot. We're asking young women and I've had this conversation with teenage women young girls we're really asking them you know to really step forward and to feel empowered to speak up for themselves and advocate for themselves but it is a huge ask it is and it's really I I said this to some girls who were 18 19 recently at a dinner party and they were telling me about some behaviors that were happening in grade 12 at their school with boys there that the boys were talking about their body counts and trying to pressure girls into adding to that body count as in having sex with them. And Nothing much has changed, Lou. And this is happening now and I think that's the thing too is just it's really important that anyone listening to this who thinks that, oh, that's something in the past, it doesn't happen anymore, it's still happening. And I think it is really difficult to be asking teenage girls to have to advocate for themselves and stand up for themselves when the ramifications are still just as negative for them as they have been for women of our my generation, your generation. It continues. And I feel really angry when I have the conversations with these young women. I'm just one of the first things I usually say is I'm really sorry 
that you're in this situation and you're going to have to be incredibly strong and you shouldn't have to be. You shouldn't have to have these conversations. You shouldn't be in this situation in the first place and I know it's going to be hard. Your identity shouldn't be based on this incident. No, but it's to ask them to step forward. They are having to be so strong. Yeah. And it's just, it's incredibly unfair. It's incredibly unfair. Well doing, and once again, conditioning, well-meaning parents and strong Mm. women behind these girls say, we have to do something about this. That's a massive ask. You know, and very strong women will push young girls into reporting when they're certainly not ready. Mm -hmm. And it creates not only Mm -hmm. traumatic problems, but it also creates legal problems. Yeah, so let's... They won't be prepared to give mm. the extent of evidence that they would be required to give. Therefore, they'll be labelled a bad bad witness. Mm. Therefore, the case will be thrown out. And once again, it will be seen as a blight on the movement to bring offenders to justice. Mm. Because the EPP look in terms of what cost-benefit, they're... They do cost-benefit analysis. On as in what is the chances of getting a conviction? That's what As opposed to how much, how many resources are they going to throw at it? Mm. So those cost-benefits come in every time they do an assessment on a victim and they say whether they're going to be a good witness or a bad witness and that mm. will go towards whether that case goes through or not. And it becomes part of the statistics that people fall back on and... These statistics, unfortunately, are only a small representation of a big picture. I think it's also that when we talk about a good witness versus a bad witness, it's really just more about with the DPP, they understand just how difficult the process is going to be and how much that victim survivor is going to be grilled and the hoops that she will have to jump through. And the DPP need to feel confident that they're going to get it, have a good chance of getting a conviction yeah. because that's the, the the end goal, obviously. I guess it's also this is probably a good chance to have a chat a bit more about the sexual assault response guide, which you've mentioned a couple of times. For any listeners who don't know about this particular document, it's something that Erin and I came together to work on earlier this year. It was the first collaboration for the SSB CoLab. And it was basically came out of a conversation that Erin and I had around the reality of what happens following a sexual assault for the victim survivor. And the reality is that the majority of those women and some boys and men will never report, but also the majority will rarely go directly to the police. And we have this narrative in the society that says, if this happens to you, report straight away. But Erin, from your experience as a police officer and your understanding that you've gained over your many years of experience, most people will not immediately report, even if they know and they work in the medical field and they know the importance of it or their police officers, they still will not immediately report. Can you share a little bit about that? Worst predatorial rate that I knew about in the QPS while I was still in the QPS was actually a doctor coming out of the RBH Mm. 4 o'clock in the morning, which is the witching hour, being sexually assaulted, and Lou, we both know predatorial rapes are very rare. 
they make it in Hollywood, but that's not the actual truth. You're going to know your offender or be introduced to your offender or they'll mm. catch you or groom you. This was predatorial, thrown to the ground, very violently raped. Now, this is a doctor. She waited three days before she reported. Mm. She knows the implications of evidence gathering mm. and DNA and mm. how bodily fluids form the basis for an investigation. She would have been aware of that big brain. But you can have as big a brain as you want. That brain is still an emotional brain. That is, mm. you are still part of an emotional feeling body who underwent trauma. And she probably balanced up what she would have to go through before she reported that three days later. And it was a proper hardcore predator. It wasn't someone that she knew. Yeah. Um, I don't know why I said proper hardcore. That was just me trying to build a picture in your head. Of, no, no, no. That, and that's... That's effective um, and it is that point you make about the fact that most of the time rapes when and sexual assaults when they occur with people we know, they're not yeah. usually a random stranger and no. yet when we see so much of what we see in our social commentary and film, et cetera, it inevitably de depicts these people usually as a stranger who sneaks into your house late at night. Wearing a clown costume. Which I know is, is not the reality. And so, but in this particular case, the trauma response is to want to go home, get in the shower and yeah. try to wash yourself repeatedly because you feel so violated and dirty. Just, and yes, yes. <clears throat> who wants to have the smells, the disgusting bodily fluids, mm. the disgustingness on you. Why would you want to keep that on you for hours and hours and hours? She would also be aware of the waiting times involved in reporting and examination. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. why would you want that? And I don't know about you, Lou, but if something traumatic happens to me, I process it with sleep. I need to shut down. Mm -hmm. um, so why would we think that people would be happy to stay up for 10 to 12 hours drenched in bodily fluids and mm. dirt and mud and whatever the circumstances of the mm. assault were, why would we think that they would want to do that? Mm. Mm. So most from your experience is that most women will go home, they'll get in the shower, and then they'll just try and remove themselves from the world as much as possible. Yeah. And I think when you were talking to me about this earlier in the year, the reason we came up with the sexual assault response guide is because when we get in the shower and we wash that evidence away, it's gone. And yeah. it is really difficult to get convictions anyway for sexual assault. And so collecting yeah. the evidence at that point is quite important. And we've included a very easy process for people to be able to do that for themselves or to be able to help someone they care about to collect the evidence before they get in the shower. Well, you raised a great point. But what we would also see with reporting is that someone who's been involved in assault will reach out to a friend mm. and it's almost like they're asking their friend for permission to do something or not do something and isn't it true if you're sick I would always ring up my mum and go I'm really sick and she'd go well you're gonna have a day off like I would ask <laughs> permission in yes. my 30s Mm. To have a day off, I would have to seek permission. And I think that's a conditioning too. And that's why you'll see people who have been assaulted will reach out to someone else. Mm. What mm. we would also see is those people would go, well, if this has happened to you, you need to report it straight away. 
but hopefully with education we can show people they don't necessarily need to mm. uh, report mm. it straight away. Hi, Lucretia here. I hope you're enjoying today's conversation. I always learn so much from my guests and I hope you do too. After all, the whole reason for this podcast is to empower everyday people like you and me with the information and tools we need to stop sexual violence in our communities. I honestly believe we all have a role to play and we can create real change through our own grassroots actions. If you'd like to support this podcast and help fund its production and promotion so we can reach even more people, you can become a patron. Just click the button on the website or in the Podbean app and put in your details. You can give as much or as little as you like, and I would be so grateful for your support. Now, let's get back to today's guest. You know, this is on a byline here, but at the moment I'm really interested in an Israeli woman who had final stage cancer and died and came back and is now public speaking about how she would change her medical treatment to survive cancer again. And she said, surviving cancer or any illness isn't about the treatment. So can we look at that in terms of an assault? It's not about the reporting. It's actually about what we do before that's more important. So she is talking about what support or what did I need to alleviate out of my life to be good to myself before I got to the treatment. Mm. The treatment is three, four down the line. And I'm thinking in terms of assaults, the reporting is three, four down the line. Mm. It's what we do beforehand and how we care for ourselves and process it Mm. ourselves beforehand that will make a really big difference for long-term mental health and recovery. Mm. That's really important. How how we value ourselves is really important. We are more important than a statistic. Absolutely. And so it's really just about, I mean, you and I have talked about this, it's having the conversation with your, your girlfriend and saying, if this happens, I'm the person you call. And when you call them, you know that they're going to listen They're going to not judge you and they're also not going to tell you what you should and shouldn't do. They're just going to be, okay, I'm here. Whatever you need, I'm here for you for that. And then if you want to have a shower, have a shower, but do you want me to help you collect the evidence first? Yes or no. Help her to make sure she's safe and then just be there and help her, the victim survivor, to feel empowered to make her own choices about what happens next with the understanding that most people will not immediately report. And, yes, in a perfect utopian world, we would feel comfortable, our brains would operate in such a way that we would go straight to police, we would be greeted by a police officer who was well-trained in trauma support and would be supportive of our reporting of the violence that had been undertaken against us and the system would flow really well and we would get a positive outcome i.e the perpetrator would be put in jail but the reality of the situation is that is often not what happens and let's deal with the reality and that is reach out to someone you trust decide what you want to do next and then look after yourself in whatever you feel is the best way for you yeah perfect yeah yeah 
perfect. Can I put a caveat on it? Can I absolutely, put a, can I absolutely? A, can I throw a, a ball into the sure. game? Mm, mm. And Lou, you would have um, experienced this yourself because you do deal with teenagers, mm. with the advocacy work that you do. Anybody under the age of sixteen, it has to be reported mm. because we're going into the realm of child exploitation. And we're going into the realm of if we don't do or investigate this, then we could let this child slip through the cracks because we're acknowledging under law that under the age of 16 they still don't have the physical or mental capacity to be able to heal, protect, look after themselves. So Mm. if we hear a 15-year-old talking about the fact that they've been part of a sexual assault, these rules don't apply. We have to report. Must report immediately. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I know that's conflicting too because I know at 15 I wouldn't have wanted someone going, I'm going to have to take this out of your hands now, baby, because you just told me something. That sucks. Mm. You know, I wouldn't have, if I knew that as a 15-year-old, I'd be keeping that one under my but I think that's also where, as adults, we need to be prepared to make the tough calls to protect young people who may at the time don't they don't think they need protecting or they think they know better because of just where they're at in their development. But if they're under 16, it is mandatory reporting in Queensland. That law was passed earlier this year, I think it was, or late last year, and it really... And this is also, I think, about us having the courage to go, you know what, I know it's going to be uncomfortable. This young person may be angry with me, may be upset, all the things, but I'm the adult here and I need to do what the right thing is to ensure this person is protected going forward and also to ensure that perpetrator does Mm. not do it, that man does not do it to someone else. Yeah. You know? Yeah, because and it big... is a curveball. It's a curveball. Mm. There's a big mm. difference between dealing with an eight-year-old with a disclosure and a 15-year-old with a disclosure. Mm. But legally, there's no tears for dealing with it differently. They're both dealt with it the same, and that is you have to report and something has to be investigated. But I will say, Lou, that we have come such a long way that if someone does come and speak to your child, whether they're 15 or 8, they are well trained in it and they're not going to come in lights and sirens and let the neighbourhood know because discretion and support is always the key. And people who are working in these areas are doing it because they are genuinely kind people. They're not being paid a lot of money to do what they do. So Mm -hmm. if they're there, it's because they want to be there. So this is where you really have to lean into the process and understand that people are there to support you. And if you don't feel like that is happening, there are checks and balances that you can say this doesn't feel good because you will be with your child if they're being interviewed unless you're a perpetrator, unless your child has made allegations against you, you will be part of that process. Your child won't be taken into the room by themselves. Lots of checks and balances to keep them safe, but it's so that no child slips through the gaps, so that we don't see these foster kids being murdered in foster homes and no one was picking up on it so that we don't see children dying of neglect these while these processes are in place Mm. and they're a harsh reality Mm. but it acknowledges that there is nothing more important than our children and our children need to be kept safe and protected from dysfunctional behaviors and neglect 
Mm. And it's only through doing that that we can actually change the conditioning, right? So we make it really clear that, that stuff is not acceptable. It will not be hidden. And no one needs to be feel ashamed if they have been the Correct. victim of those yep. behaviours. And if we can start to shift that narrative and that conditioning we have, then we have, a, I think, a real chance to, you know, within a couple of generations, really pull back the levels of sexual violence we're seeing. Because at the moment it's just the numbers are just horrific. Yeah. Absolutely and horrific. It's always, it always brings a down on anything that I'm ever teaching. But in the last five years, the surveys that they've taken in terms of our ideas of equality have actually dropped so what we've seen is that people are more likely to think that a woman has deserved rape or assault or something happened to her or she probably mm. deserves to be paid less. She probably deserves to do more household chores. There. So our ideas of what equality looks like in terms of genders has actually dropped. And what we've seen proportionately, suicides have gone up and we've also seen sexual assaults and misogynistic violence go up too. So it's not good for anyone. No, it's, it's not, not good for any level of society to treat fifty-one percent of the population as a subclass. It doesn't work for anyone. No, it doesn't. And it's it's time that we change that. And I know that you're really committed to that change, and so am I. And everyone who is listening, you're committed to and. Oh, if you come this far, my God. I think I'm actually going to break this up into, I'll break this up into two podcast episodes, (laughs) I think, because it's just, we've covered some amazingly valuable information today that's quite practical. And I think, Erin, you've given the listeners a lot of really valuable insights about the reality that we're facing with regards to sexual violence, particularly with young people and the work that's still to be done, but also what's being done right now and that we are the conversations are happening and we need to keep having them to create the change we want to see. And, Lou, you see where things can be brought in at a practicality mm. where I'm going off on tangents. No, 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 so, not at all. And I've, I've you seen <laughs> you're in, the, <laughs> you're in, the, you're in the, the schools, you know, delivering the information and empowering these young women with the skills they need to be able to try and break this the, the freeze flight fight patterning to be able to verbalize what's going on to them and to hopefully keep them safer and at the end of the day that's what we want we want every woman and girl and vulnerable person child to be safe from sexual violence and I'm really proud to have done the sexual assault response guide with you and I just think the work you do is amazing so thank you for coming on and taking the time to chat to us today you are so hard working thank you (laughs) not hard working you my dear thank you thank you but thank you very much and for anyone who wants to know more about Erin's work I will be including links to her social media and um, other information in the show notes so you can definitely jump on and follow her on her socials and if you would like her to come out and deliver some training in your school please do reach out to Erin she does amazing work work. places too and workplaces because you guys are frontline getting smacked in the head every day yes yes so please the information will be available reach out to erin if you um, would like to connect and thank you for listening today and thank you erin for coming along thank you lou thanks so much for your company today 
If you feel more informed or empowered after listening to this podcast, please leave us a review or share this episode with a friend or family member. Medusa's Mic is brought to you by the Stop Sexual Violence Collaboration, an enterprise to bring people together to discuss and facilitate sexual violence prevention and response initiatives. The music for today's podcast is brought to you by Dima Tishko from Tank. The opinions and perspectives offered on Medusa's mic are solely those of the interviewer and the interviewees. They are our express personal opinions and views. They are not intended or meant to replace any treatment or advice you may be receiving from a licensed professional. If you have specific concerns or a situation in which you require professional, psychological, medical or legal help, you should consult with an appropriately trained and qualified specialist. This episode is copyrighted and should not be reproduced without express permission from SSV Colab and Lucretia Ackfield.